Chelsea Road is a Dubeha. Welcome to Crowley Beha Short Stories and Poetry for December 1st, 2023. I'm Terrence O'Donnell, your favorite's Calais. Come sit with me next to a warm fire with a cup of something hot while I read you some more fictional stories and poetry from Medium.com again this week. I have seven short stories and poems for you, a couple of fantasy and science fiction stories, a couple of poems, and Robert G. Longpray's second chapter from his new book. So I'm of Irish descent and a self-professed Shauna Kay, an Irish storyteller. I enjoy reading stories and poems, especially during the colder months. There's nothing better than sitting somewhere warm and listen to the good stories and poems for a few minutes to take your mind off your troubles for a wee bit. So what's a week podcast is available to listen to on nearly every podcast platform out there, and now on YouTube. I also found out this week that the Spotify version of this podcast has become very popular in Malaysia, of all places. Subscriptions are free, but I do have a donations tab on the rss.com webpage found in the link with the newsletter, at the end of the Medium newsletter, and on my website at crownnebeha.com. I appreciate any support for my efforts to bring these stories and poems to you. Disclosure for everyone. In order to read the complete stories and poems, you'll need to sign up for a subscription on Medium. Although I'm thinking about this new Medium Extra called Friends of Media. It allows the author to set up a link that can be shared with everyone. If I see one in a story, I'll most certainly share it with you. So now my first story this week is called A Song of Casting, A Battle for Survival by Catherine Moore. She published this in the Crake and Lore. The ground shuddered in front of our spellcaster's choirs chanting, ripples of punishing sound waves traveling across the plain in front of us. The few trees had shattered at the first strike, birds falling from the sky, and small mammals in low brush keeling over. Explosions too low to be heard reverberated through the soil as the two sound attacks crashed in the middle of the battlefield, shockwaves ripping furrows and tossing boulders into the air. The fallout from the two colliding attacks crashed back towards, towards both forces. I stood in the displacer ranks, adjacent to the main choir, deflecting the magic away from them with our own song. I tensed as another attack rolled towards us. Matching my voice to the people around me, our displacer song sharpened into hard, angular sounds that pierced the oncoming blow and sent it shearing away to the sides. We could see the high mage standing atop a pavilion behind his army, smiling grimly. We were a small mismatched force compared to his battle mages, trained from birth. He knew we couldn't hold off his forces for long. The high mage glanced to his lieutenant who raised a horn to his lips and blew a quick succession of notes that took flight across the clamor. A squad of enemy bowmen stepped forward, each with a singer at his side. Arrows were knocked, bows raised, aim taken. At a signal, a rain of arrows was released, the eerie whistling of their fletches accompanied by the singer's high, warbling tune, adding true flight for each arrow. A second rain was released before the first had reached us, yet more singers guiding them. We redoubled our efforts, deflecting as many arrows as we could from our main choir, but the losses were heavy. I spared a precious second to glance over my shoulder. We just had to hold him long enough for the shamans to reach us. We all volunteered to face the High Mage's army here, knowing it was most likely the last thing we would do. We were buying the extra time needed to save our people, although the price was high. Sweat was dripping down my face my breath rasping in my throat as I strove to maintain cohesion with my group. 
The scent of hot mud, smoke, and fear was wrapping around us like an invisible cloak threatening to choke us. A warning cry reached us. The enemy was bringing in their bombarders. Grouped in a semicircle behind the main force, the bombarders began to build their chargers, their deep humming infusing the balls with fire ready to hurl at us. We weren't going to make it. There were too many of them and too few of us. I threw a look at the grim faces around me, all of them reaching the same conclusion. I prayed that the villages in the path of the High Mage's army had evacuated, that our deaths here wouldn't be for nothing. We braced for the oncoming assault. A new wave of arrows soared towards us. As they descended towards our choir, they began to explode in showers of gold and scarlet. The bombarder charges disintegrated in midair, streams of fire seeming to float in the sky before us. A shimmering white shield appeared over our force, curving gracefully as it grew towards the ground. A new song could be heard, dampening the sounds of the explosion. It was strong but beautiful, their serene sounds echoing in the suddenly quiet air. We cheered, slapping each other on the back as we realized our shamans had arrived. They stood quietly behind the choir, hands linked and faces turned towards the sky. The shield encompassed our whole army now, the enemy unable to break through. This casting had been lost for centuries until a recent chance discovery brought it to light. It was highly complex, but enough for our elders had managed to master it in time to reach us. From where I stood, gasping for air, I could see the high mage's face set in fury as he pounded his fist on his leg. He gestured jerkily to his lieutenant, standing slack-mouthed next to him, and growled a commander for reinforcements. The horn's notes flew again, and more chanters joined the ranks of the choir as they redoubled their efforts. Our shield held firm. Flashes of starburst crackled off of its face as more charges were flung at it. Arrows exploded like fireworks, and sound rolled up the back like waves crashing against a immovable cliff. Smoke drifted across the field, buffeted by invisible sound strikes and whipped into many whirlwinds. The high mage's displacers began to falter as they were overwhelmed by our renewed attacks and the rebounding blows from their own army. One by one they fell, clutching their heads in agony. The choir began to take heavy damage, huge gaps opening in their ranks. We slowly advanced, our translucent shield moving with us. As we got closer, the appalling damage to the high mage's troops increased, chanters spasming on the ground as their chests exploded with the force of the sound. The remaining chanters began to step back slowly, then more quickly, until they broke altogether and fled. The high mage howled in fury, cursing his troops for cowards and deserters, throwing sour grenades at their retreating backs until he was hustled to his carriage by the stalwart lieutenant. Our shamans held the shield until the last of the enemy was out of sight, before letting it fall and sinking to the ground in exhaustion. We howled with victory, our unexpected survival making us giddy with disbelief. My legs gave way, and I sat suddenly, the churned-up earth soft beneath me. We had survived. We had won. My next story is short. It's called Half Mutants Will Travel. It is never a good sign when they interrupt your retirement by David Pahor. The pair of slim bull terriers were chasing the distressed garden droid up and down the path between the main house and the summer dome, where we were resting on deck chairs under a canopy of kentia palms. The ivory female and jet black male were picture perfect, panting only slightly, tails held vertically, narrow eyes fixated on their prey, no skin allergies, polycytic kidneys or stuttering heart valves to be seen within a radius 10 light years. The black art of function gain had its gene-tempering virtues. 
The tall trees arch glossily, their dark green fawns with nay a hint of brown or lusterless blemishes, root rot or molt. It was the best of times. The five of us took turns on weekends to host the other four for afternoons of drinking, bitching, and punning that often slipped into nights of storytelling that would scare the fur off a Pantalian dragon bear. Zimwat, who had almost succeeded in blowing me away in our former life, had just insulted my two egg-headed beauties, comparing the canines to mutant piglets. I was staggering to my feet in mock anger, spilling my cocktail as the double thunder broke across the clear blue sky. Rarely, if ever, does a denizen of the retirement planet return if retrieved by his erstwhile masters. The group fell silent as we intently analyzed the descending ship, twisting toward us as it bled speed. I sensed them relax around me while the knot grew tighter in my stomach. It was an outreach fast gift with which I was intimately acquainted, having before my share of black ops with one. But I would be taking the dogs with me. My next one is a horror fantasy by Katie Langston, published in Horror Hounds. Born in the Forest, Alice's Baby. Now there's a note I had on here. And let me make sure that I'm there because I think there was some special. Yeah, this is the one. So Miss Katie Langston wanted me to make sure that I told everybody about her website. It's called seenandgreen.com. So make sure you go visit if you have a chance. So, Born in the Forest, Alice's Baby by Katie Langston. Alice awoke to the sound of thunder, disorientation consuming her senses. She felt the impolite pricks from the dead grass beneath her. The air was wet and heavy, laced with the familiar stench of raw salmon remains. Electric skeletal hands stretched across the sky outside of the cave, illuminating the ghostly cavern with silver hues. Alice looked to the left, using the fleeting light, to see that her baby was still beside her. Everyone else was gone hunting. They normally took the baby, but must have left her with Alice because of the storm. Alice had been feigning weakness and injury for about a week, but was certain that she was strong enough to make the journey now. The storm was a blessing. The clamor would conceal her sounds, and the rain would wash away her tracks. This was her chance. She heaved her body upright and felt around clumsily for a backpack. When she found it, she cradled her child and carefully tucked her in the bag. I haven't even named her yet, she thought. Why the hell am I thinking of that now? Eve. Her name will be Eve. Alice hastily molded the grass bedding into lumps, hoping they might resemble her and a sleeping child, and then she covered the impostors with blankets. Five miles to the east. She had lived in the cave for a long time. But how long it had been, she could not remember. Let's see. A few weeks before, I realized I was pregnant. Then the entire pregnancy, birth, and three weeks more after that, or four? Everyone must think I'm dead. It doesn't matter. What matters is how far the road is from here. The moon would have been a proper guide for both lighting and direction, but Alice didn't have that option. She would have to make do. Five miles to the east, she thought. I can do it. Moving quickly, she weaved through the trees and bushes with the grace of a puma, slowed only by an occasional thorn-covered blackberry vine that ripped at her jeans. They know. Alice had traveled about two miles before she heard it. The eerie howl penetrated the woods with ancient authority. It braided through the pines and cliffsides, closing the distance between the cave and Alice. Her blood turned to ice. Another howl from the south erupted, and then two more howls from the north. Alice broke into a sprint 
neglecting the limits of her fatigued body. It was run or die. Sporadic lightning provided clues for terrain conditions. Alice tried to take advantage by creating a mental map each time the landscape was revealed. She hurtled rocks, batted branches from her face, and slammed into trees. Her legs were rubber on fire, and her lungs were at capacity. Alice face planted into something clammy and massive. It wrapped around the back of her head like a spider dominated every inch of its prey. From there, it yanked on her ponytail, and she was lifted from the ground, still kicking her legs in an instinctive running motion. No, she's mine. You can't fucking have her. She's mine, Alice shrieked. Lightning blazed, and Alice saw that the others had arrived. No, 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 she began to weep, hanging from the creature's grip like a wet jacket on a hook. The beast set her on her feet. Alice was surrounded. A backpack was stripped from her as she hung her head low, her arms slipping out of the loose like noodles. Eve was excavated from the pack with care and cradled by her father, her tiny body getting lost in the long black tufts of hair that covered his chest. Fonty, I never meant to hurt you, Alice said, still crying. The creature looked down with malice. It spoke to her the way it did in dreams, through telepathy. Evil, he said. Your science is demonic. No, I promise. I was going to take care of her. I just can't do that out in these woods. She belongs here with us, Thonty said, not in a laboratory. You plan to run tests, to hurt her, to make her suffer and bleed, all for your career. No, that's not... Lies, Thonty forced the message into her brain while releasing an audible growl. She needs me. She's still breastfeeding, Alice said desperately. You came here to study us, and after a year, you learned nothing. We have other ways. She's better off without you. He turned his massive body around and walked away. Eve's hairy arms flailed wildly in response to the separation, and she exerted a mournful high-pitched howl. Ah! Alice felt the intrusive, sweaty hand on her face again. The other hand gripped her shoulder, so tightly that it almost crushed bones. With a quick twist of the neck, Alice's essence faded. She fell and lay motionless, unable to do anything but blink. The sky paused, allowing the lightning to shine down on her for a surreal moment. She admired delicate mushrooms and intricate pine cones. A melancholy smile stretched across her face just before she passed. Alice had always been enchanted with the mysteries of the forest. My next one is from my favorite Bulgarian writer, Mariana Falsarova. And this is a poem here. And it's entitled, A Bonfire to the Sky. We all bear our burdens. I don't know what is the height of our spirit. We all bear our burdens. Are they too heavy? Do they bring us down to the ground, to our knees? Are they a bonfire to the sky? Do we need to be in line with our time? This cruel, selfish time. Do we bear our burden like a lamb? Our soul is heavy like a stone. We feel sick. We wither with pain. We drag out a miserable existence. Since when? Afterwards? Until the end? Our spirit shrinks. Our spirit should put up with the burden forever. For our futile attempts to set free, it is what is our due. Our flesh is transitory, vanishes. What is the path of our soul? To suffer? To reach the sky? To show what is the height of the human spirit? We will reach as far as our inner strength goes. And now I have another poem. And this one's by Lovely Poems, published in Poetry Publication. Poem, The Language of Silence, 
Poetry by Lovely Poems. In the depths of quiet, where no words are spoken, lies a realm of meaning, seldom awoken, a tongue without words, the message unbroken, the language of silence, so rarely token. The Hush of Dawn In the hush of dawn, as the sun ascends, the language of silence, its truth transcends. A world before words, where the soul amends, the stillness, a message, the heart comprehends. A whispering breeze, a whispering breeze through the willow sigh, in the meadows under the endless sky, a tale it carries as it gently nigh, in the language of silence where spirits lie. The echoes of solitude, amidst the solitude of mountains grand, the echoes of silence in this land speak of ancient wisdom, an unseen hand, guiding the way as nature planned. The quiet of hearts. and the quiet of hearts, emotions unfold, a love untold, a story untold, in the depth of a gaze, secrets to behold, the language of silence, more precious than gold. The tears of rain. In the tears of rain, the earth's lament, a message of sorrow, so poignant, so intent, the land and sky, in a moment's consent, speak in silence, their grief unbent. A pause in time. As night descends and stars ignite, the language of silence reveals its might. A pause in time, a celestial light, in the cosmic dance where worlds unite. The language of lovers, two souls entwined in an intimate dance. In the language of lovers, a loving trance, a glance, a touch, a shared glance. In the world of silence, where hearts enhance. The wisdom of elders, in the wisdom of elders, the years well spent. The language of silence their knowledge lent. A nod, a smile, in silence they present. The lessons of life in their silence are sent. The Comfort of Night As the world retires to the comfort of night, the language of silence with stars so bright, a soothing serenade, a celestial rite, guides us to dreams with gentle light. The Echo of Eternity In the language of silence we find our grace a sacred space where spirits embrace, a timeless journey through time and space, the echoes of eternity in this quiet place. The endless conversation. In the world of words, where voices collide, the language of silence is a soothing guide, a bridge between souls on life's white tide, an endless conversation where love and truth reside, the epiphany of stillness. And so, in the language of silence, we find our way, in moments of stillness, we learn to obey. The voice of the heart that's not led astray. In the language of silence, we eternally stay. The language of silence. In the language of silence, a universe unfolds where emotions, nature, and the cosmos communicate without the needs for words. It begins with the quiet of dawn and whispers through the breeze, echoing in solitude and hearts. The language of silence finds expression in the tears of rain and the pause in time, in the tender connection between lovers and the wisdom shared by elders. As night falls, the language of silence comforts and guides us, and its echoes reverberate through the ages, transcending the boundaries of words. It serves as a bridge without souls and unveils profound truths that reside within the stillness. In the end, the language of silence offers an eternal conversation where love, wisdom, and truth find their home. My next one is called Born to Softness by Brenna B., published in Rainbow Salad. 
this is not a place to rest, but my heart is climbing my throat and my lungs are the fire I cannot light. Their fast footfalls crunch the twigs and pine needles in the distance, drawing near. I am glad for the clouds that hide the moon tonight. There are many of them. They can circle like coyote packs to flush me out. I cannot stop, but I cannot go. Not yet. So I scramble, overly desperate and thus untidy, smearing sap and dirt along my forearms as I push myself deeper under an overgrown pine. I need to be quiet, while my breath is ragged and roaring, a beast I cannot tame. I wrap my fingers over my lips as if that will help stifle the sound. Maybe it will. But they are better at this than I am. They have found me every time, no matter how silent or cunning. My thoughts are slippery with exhaustion, dredging memories in random snapshots, overlaid and mixing like my watercolors, the beach and bloody rooftop and a hand in mine, the crawl space and my sister's bruised face and the rusted locket twisting in the drain. I dig my nails into the dirt, trying to hold on to where I am, and that lets the fear back in. It isn't hard to do. It is always there now, pumping my heart more than my unvalued blood. The footfalls are louder now, and worse, slowing. They know. They always know. Tears leak from my eyes unbidden as they begin to whistle. The familiar notes twist through my bones, too familiar now. And I can't control my breathing when there's this much fear inside me. I am more fear than myself. And I hate that they have done that to me. Transform me into something unrecognizable. Washed away every softness and fragility, every lilac color. I am nothing but bruises now, scrapes and sweat and fear. I don't know when this ends. I don't know how. But I want some part of me to remain. Something not completely tarnished. Something me. My fingernail is loose from the boot that crushed it, the skin blackening. Clenching my jaw, I yank on it, biting down on the bright pain that comes in response. I twist and pull until it comes free, and I press the little nail to the ground like a seed just as hands close around my arms and drag me out of my hiding. Like a baby bunny pulled from her hovel by hungry snouts, born to sniff me out. And I? What am I? Born to softness? Born to run and hope not to be caught? Mass faces look upon me. Their whistles stop in unison. I tremble. I cannot help it. They open their circle and point their hands, say nothing. It's the same every time. Every time I know what they want me to do. And I know I will do it. I run. And soon after, they chase. My last story, as I said in earlier in the beginning, is from Robert J. Longpre. He's a Canadian writer. And I'm bringing you in chapter one of his book, Sanctuary, The Signal to Leave Home, published in Life Through Lens. Carrie stood at the door of his home, which stood open. Neither of his parents had ever left the door open. With hesitation evident in his steps, he entered the house. For some reason, he tried to remain as quiet as possible. As he stepped into the entryway, he heard a rare silence in the house. In the silence, the hum of the refrigerator cut in, causing him to catch his breath. He looked around, expecting to see evidence of a break and enter. Yet nothing seemed out of place. He slipped off his shoes and walked silently across the floor to reach the kitchen. Turning to the left, he saw the television room was undisturbed as the entryway and kitchen. A quick glance out the patio door revealed nothing out of the ordinary was visible. Entering the guest washroom just off the television room, he saw the prearranged signal left by his father, 
a tube of toothpaste sitting in a glass on the counter by the sink. Ah, so that's where they are, Carrie muttered to himself. Just as quietly as he entered the house, he left. Once out the door, he closed and locked it securely. Likely, his little sister Leslie had rushed back into the house for one more teddy bear before getting into the family vehicle without shutting the door to house properly. Carrie knew that they had left not long before he had arrived at the house. Otherwise, the open door would have been too much of an invitation for strangers or curious neighbors. Quickly, he sprinted to a house three doors down the street. He had to check on his friend Anne. Arriving at the house, he saw that Anne's car was missing. As usual, he had made it home from school before she did. He knocked on the door and waited for a response. Just as he was about to knock a second time, Anne arrived. Carrie walked to the car, glad to see that she was okay. With so many people getting sick and too many of those dying of a new, strange disease, Carrie was constantly worried that she would get sick and die. He wasn't worried about himself as he knew that he was invulnerable to illnesses. Brushing past him, Anne ran to the house in panic. Mom, Dad, are you there? She called out as she opened the unlocked door. Carrie was surprised as that door to Anne's home was never left unlocked, even when they were at home. There was no response, though one of her parents' vehicles was parked in the driveway. Carrie didn't wait to be invited into the house. He knew Anne's home almost as much as he knew his own. Anne had been his best friend for more than ten years, and he had spent many hours at her house playing video games, listening to music, just plain hanging out with Anne. Anne called out again to her parents, only to be met with more silence in return. Your dad's SUV is missing, Carrie said. Maybe they went shopping? She ignored Carrie's words as she raced through the house. Standing in the kitchen, Carrie saw a note placed on the fridge with a magnet. Anne, your parents left a message on a refrigerator, he called out to get her attention. Quickly, returning to the kitchen, Anne tore the note from the side of the fridge. We've gone to the hospital. Dad is sick. Call me. Don't come to the hospital. You know they won't let you in to see your father. Now with so many getting sick. Love, Mom. Taking out her phone, she quickly called her mother at the hospital. How is Dad doing? were the first words she spoke. Please, Mom, tell me the truth. Dad has the virus. He's not doing well. They are putting him on a ventilator. The hospital is putting him in isolation. I'm just waiting for the results of my test. Regardless of the results, I have to stay in isolation. Besides, I can't abandon your father. I called Carrie's mom. She says you can stay with them for a few weeks until I know more, until it's safe for me to come home. I want you to go with Carrie to their cabin right away. No, I don't want to go. I want to stay here, Anne. You can't stay, sweetie. They won't let you in to see us anyway. I took the tablet and my laptop so we can do video calls if I have to stay. I promise I will keep in contact with you until it's safe for you to come back home. But mom, don't bum-bum me, sweetie. You have to go with Carrie. You can't stay at home alone. Make sure to take enough clothes and anything you might need for the next two, three weeks. Once she was off the phone, Anne began to cry. Without thinking twice, Carrie embraced her, holding her tight without saying a word for several minutes. Finally, she began to relax. Anne, I want you to come with me, okay? Not because your mom said you had to go with me. She nodded in agreement. We'll leave your car here and take mine. Go and pack. I have to do the same. Do you need me to be with you while you pack before I get my stuff? Carrie added as an afterthought. I'll get my clothes, Anne said while shaking her head no. I need a few other things as well. You know, pictures and Anne were all the words she was able to get out before she again broke into a heart-rending wail of grief. Carrie held her for a few more moments before leading her into the house. She stopped and froze once inside the door, shaking her head. I can't do it, Carrie. 
he led her back outside and guided her to his old jeep, told her not to worry. He would get her things. He knew where her treasures were in her room. Once back in her house, he grabbed a large duffel sport bag and began to put in a good selection of her clothing. Unsure of what to take, he erred on the side of too much. When it came to her socks and intimate apparel, he simply emptied the two drawers into the bag. When the time came, Anne could sort through all the stuff to find out what was still needed. Carrie knew he didn't have a lot of time to waste. He packed her laptop and her treasures into a separate overnight bag. Taking a last look around, he took the photos off the walls to add to the collection. Taking the two bags out to the Jeep, he gave her a weak smile. Placing the bags into the back of the Jeep, he paused before turning to go inside his own house. I have to get my stuff, he said. I won't be long. Carrie wasted no time in throwing his own valuables into a bag. He grabbed a few essential clothes and then closed the door to the house behind him, locking it. He knew from the emergency signal his father had left for him in the guest bathroom. He had to leave as soon as possible. And so that's the end of that chapter. And as I said, I will be publishing subsequent chapters in the, you know, going through the weeks here. So stay tuned for more. So I hope you enjoyed this week's show. As always, I try to offer everyone a little bit of variety of something and maybe a little something that will touch the heart at times. Until next week, slantcha. Thank you for listening to the show today. I hope you enjoyed it. You'll return again for another episode of Crona Bay Stories of Poetry next week. Share this podcast with your friends and relations. The more the merrier. Search for Crona Bay Stories and Poetry in your favorite podcast app. I hope I've achieved my goal on helping you feel like we've been sitting under the village oak tree as I entertain you today. This is Shauna King. I want to continue to delight you with a story or a poem that may bring you a smile or make you think a little after we part for the day. As I say goodbye this week, I wish to leave you with this Irish blessing as you go about your day. Bless you and yours, as well as the cottage you live in. May the roof overhead be well thatched, and those inside be well matched. Shlongo foil, which means goodbye for now in Irish. Thank you.